This is the Low Tox Life Podcast. If all the birds could fly right now, as high as me somehow, they could see all the things I've been dreaming of. These wings of mine flutter inside, they shimmy and they glide, breaking forth, crack the shell from this clockwork light. Hello and welcome to the Low Tox Life Podcast. I'm Alex Stewart, your host. Today is show 172 and we are talking about the plastic crisis with Brett Chamberlain from one of my favourite education uh, activist advocate websites uh, and organisations, The Story of Stuff. Many of you will have already come across some of their cartoons uh, or animations, if you like, that illustrate some of the big problems of our world in a really, really simple way that help you see very clearly what the facts are and also what we can do about things as consumers. It was founded by Annie Leonard a number of years ago, and that's someone who I've always looked up to, and it's so wonderful to see it continue to thrive with uh, incredible advocates uh, in the story of stuff family to continue the work. So Brett is the director of community engagement for the story of stuff project. And he has a long line of experience when it comes to advocacy and activism, organizing and pushing forward issues that so desperately need more attention and more action. So over the course of his work as an activist and organiser, Brett has spoken out about waste issues across the USA, visited the front lines of plastic pollution in Southeast Asia to capture aerial video for the story of plastic, uh, which we'll talk about more in today's show. And uh, Brett is a New Hampshire native and holds a BA in politics and journalism from New York University. So outside of work... Uh, He loves board games like me and um, loves exploring California by motorcycle. And I really love that he included that in his bio because I think when people feel called to a cause, we can often become so consumed by it that we don't bring that element of lightness and joy into our consciousness, into our everyday lives uh, to refuel so that we can continue to give to causes. And I know I have been guilty of that myself. Uh, and I thought that was so refreshing to read that I had to share it with you as well. Maybe one day I will have the chance to beat Brett at a board game being highly competitive on the board game front as I am. I don't know if anyone else out there is too. <laughs> so, um, I'm very excited about today's show and we will kick into that in a little second. It is part of our Game Changers series of people creating change uh, in different industries, in different ways, and we have three fantastic interviews uh, today with Brett. Last week we had the wonderful uh, Rebecca Wildbear calling to you to make change for yourself, reconnecting to the earth and to your dreams. I definitely encourage you to listen back to that show if you haven't. Uh, And then next week, we have the wonderful David Bronner from Dr. Bronner's, the CEO globally, and uh, he has been an incredible change maker throughout his career and time as the um, head of Dr. Bronner's or co-head as his um, brother, Mike, is the vice president. Uh, Sorry, president. And uh, also then we have Stuart Palmer, who is... 
a finance advisor by trade and he's going to talk to us about the ethics of finance. We had a show on this last year already and I wanted to bring Stuart on because I think so many people were interested in how our money and where we keep it, how we use it can make such a massive difference to the world we see around us. And that will be our um, our fourth show in our Changemakers series. Then I'm going to do a solo show and talk about some of the biggest ways we can affect change in our day-to-day before handing over to a really exciting health series that we have uh, hooked in. So if you didn't hear me talk about it last week, all of our shows are going to be organized into particular aspects of leading a low-tox life. Um, starting with these incredibly inspiring change makers and then moving into a personal health series, then moving into a mind series. Uh, We have a really exciting family series coming up, the home, uh, you name it, we're covering it. We're just doing it in blocks where we'll deep dive for three to five shows at a time into one aspect of the low-tox life. That's not only going to help your brain function better, but it's going to help us deliver more resources to you in a sort of organized fashion that complements what we've got going on in the show. And you sort of see us talk about uh, different things in uh, in and around uh, the blog, the podcast, the um, uh, social media channels. So it all kind of makes sense and we move through them in an organized way. I think that's going to be really good for my brain too. So I'm very excited about that show, but of course, we always have a wonderful sponsor that helps you make your low-tox swaps a little lighter on the hip pocket, and that this month is Killer Pillar, and these guys make the most sustainable uh, pillow going, and they now have two sizes, which I'm super excited about. So you have this beautiful original pillow that's designed by a husband and wife team. Uh, Todd, the husband is a chiropractor, passionate about nervous system and spine health, and really wanted to create a pillow for the whole range of health benefits that are experienced when someone looks after their spine properly uh, and their nervous system while they sleep and regenerate. But also... Uh, um, Carolina, who, when she was researching all the materials that they might use for this incredible chiropractic pillow, came across how much devastation is caused uh, by microplastics in a lot of the synthetic materials, even the ones that had been previously uh, decided as chiropractically excellent for the contouring that they give they still leach a whole bunch of microplastic dust that we breathe in and, of course, that pollutes our air and our waterways when we wash these pillows or their covers. So it's a really exciting uh, product and they now have a tween size as well for 8 to 12-year-olds made entirely of GOT certified organic cotton, beautiful Australian wool, all made in Australia as well, and they're offering 15% off and free shipping Australia-wide. Your code is LOWTOXLIFE15 to get that access to the discount. And Killa, K-I-L-L-A, Pillar, P-I-L-L-A, is easily Googleable, or you can head to our show notes at lowtoxlife.com forward slash podcast to grab yourself a pillow. No plastic was used in the creation of this pillow, so I know you guys are going to love it, and it fits perfectly in 
with our show today with Brett Chamberlain from Story of Stuff talking about the plastic crisis and the work that Story of Stuff is doing. I hope you enjoy today's show. Hello, Brett. How are you? I'm very well. It's a pleasure to join you. Thank you so much for inviting me to speak with you and to your audience as well. I'm so excited to have uh, you on the show. I have been a huge fan of Story of Stuff ever since Annie Leonard started producing and sending those gorgeous uh, and insightful cartoons out into the world. And it was one of my, um, I think one of my first uh, forays into feeling comfortable being a change maker with a bigger voice in my own life and community myself, because it was just so beautifully done and obvious. And I think it'd be a really great thing to sort of unpack maybe some of the origins of that and what thinking was behind that strategic decision to make it a a visually exciting and simple um, uh, medium for sharing, you know, the plastic crisis with people. Uh, So how did you come to care about um, plastic pollution? Because that's always such an individual story and I'm always curious to see how it played out for people. Absolutely. So... I think that my own journey really illustrates as well the importance of the Story of Stuff video, as you yourself just acknowledged. Um, For folks that aren't familiar with our work, the Story of Stuff Project is a nonprofit organization. We're based in Berkeley, California, but we do have a global community around the world. We're working to transform the way that we make, use, and throw away stuff so that it's more healthy, sustainable, and just. We have an enormous amount of stuff flowing through our consumer economy from electronics to single-use disposable plastic items, our clothing and cosmetics. And unfortunately, we're consuming our Earth's natural resources to produce stuff, which soon becomes trash, at an unsustainable rate. We fundamentally have to transform this system into a circular one, or we are going to start hitting limits. Uh, We are going to have to change either by design or by disaster. And so we're really pushing for a deliberate move towards a more just and sustainable economy. Now, uh, in my own path as an activist, um, beginning in high school during the uh, Iraq and Afghanistan war years, I was doing a lot of anti-war work um, and anti-recruitment, trying to stop military recruiters from coming into high schools in our area and recruiting my peers and friends to fight and die in unnecessary uh, interventions overseas. Uh, In college, I focused more on economic justice work because the American, really global economic crash um, was concurring with my my graduating from high school, dating myself a little bit there. Um, And I had the good fortune of being in a position to participate in Occupy uh, Wall Street, which began in 2011, uh, during which time I was a student in uh, New York City and had front, front row access to that conversation. But I was really struggling to unify those different fields of, of activism. Um, anti-war work, economic justice work, environmental justice work felt like very separate and disparate fights. And it was that first Story of Stuff video, which is a 20-minute animated explainer that walks us through the materials economy from the extraction of resources to the production of consumer goods, their distribution around the world, and ultimately their end of life, that helped me to understand the interconnectedness of all of these justice issues the impact on the planet and on human beings around the world are all symptoms of this linear consumer economy. And that's really what got me focusing a little bit more on waste and consumerism as an intervention point to address a variety of social and environmental problems from resource fights to the unequal distribution of economic resources and other resources around the world and within countries. 
So I really enjoy talking with people about consumerism and with the waste end of that system because I think that it's a great lens into that conversation. Trash is something that all of us produce pretty much every day. We see it anytime we leave the house on the sides of roads and sidewalks or public trash bins. It's something that everyone, for the most part, universally would agree is an undesirable thing, right? It's waste. We want to get rid of it and not look at it again. And yet when you start to pick apart that uh, phenomena and really look at what is waste, where does it come from, where does it go, and how does it reflect this linear system, you find that it's a really, really, really great intervention point to having a variety of conversations about much more politicized topics, but uh, on a basis that is easier for people to really engage with. So in, in my opinion, if we can really untangle the question of waste, we can solve a lot of other problems because uh, the benefits will ripple all their way upstream throughout the entire consumer economy. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and so uh, I'd love to ask before we start digging into waste as the um, body of our conversation today, uh, what some of the biggest lessons you've learned as an activist have been in terms of effectiveness, cut through, uh, perseverance, you know, what, what have you learned so far? Yeah, absolutely. I was reflecting on, you know, my path as an activist and some of the lessons learned along the way in preparation for this conversation. And there's a number of items that I'd be happy to share. I think the first, and this maybe is a little insider baseball, is that we really do need to be strategic. This is a big fight uh, against very powerful interests um, that are deeply entrenched in the global economic and political systems. And so it's incumbent on all of us to make sure that the work that we are doing really meaningfully moves the needle, that we are paying attention to those most pressing and crucial fights and that we're bringing the most impactful tactics to bear on each of those fights. As a component of that, I think that there's a, a lot of value to making sure that we're scaling our impact. Um, and to me, that means not just being a change maker oneself directly, but also uh, teaching others, bringing folks into the conversation, empowering other organizers and other groups, working with youth. Um, that's a great opportunity to bring someone into the fight that will have decades of impact. And that kind of flows into the next um, lesson, which is a reminder to all of us, something that I think anyone that's been engaged in this, this type of work has to remind themselves from time to time. And that is that this work is not a sprint and it's not even a marathon, it is a relay. Um, we may not necessarily see the type of just and sustainable world within our lifetime perhaps, but uh, I think it certainly is helpful to reflect on the, the fact that the work that we're doing moves the ball forward and that we are empowering and inviting into this conversation the next generation of leaders and activists that will bring us somewhat closer to that future and that over the generations we can continue to tilt the scales and, and move the balance in the right way. And then finally, um, it, it's uh, the, the last lesson is a quote from the author Ken Kesey. And he said, put your good where it will do the most. I think that that's a reminder to all of us that there are many different roles to play in this type of work. Certainly there are folks that um, are prepared to lock themselves down to a bulldozer at a pipeline site and get arrested. And that is important and admirable work. Uh, there are also folks though that um, pick up their briefcase the next day and go in to defend those individuals in court. There are people that are fundraising to provide bail money to them. There are people that are cooking meals to uh, feed those protest encampments. There are people that are educating others around these fights, whether in conversation with friends or in the media. 
Uh, there are people that are researching what the next fight looks like and strategizing how we can make a difference around those issues. So there really is a part for everyone to play and not all of it necessarily looks like nitty gritty front lines, direct action activism. Um, but you know, I think it's incumbent on all of us to reflect on our particular strengths and skills and interests and really think about how we can bring those to bear in this fight, how we can really apply our unique gifts to make a meaningful difference in this work. Mm, so true. And I can't help but draw a parallel to our uh, bushfire crisis here in Australia right now, uh, which hopefully by the time this airs next month is over because it's really quite shocking how much of our country is burning. Um, and some of us are cooking meals for uh, volunteer firefighters and the rural fire service. Some people are, you know, last night I was at a big rally in town hall, you know, calling for more action from our government. And all of us are doing our part. And I think that is such a key thing to land on personally for everybody out there when we think, oh gosh, I could never chain myself to a tree. Maybe you don't have to. In fact, actually, you don't have to. There are other people who will feel called to do that. And there is you who might feel called to cook meals for that person. And I love that you've, you've pointed that out because it helps us feel like there's, there's space for us all to shine in a collective um, growing of uh, awareness in these big issues of our time. That's exactly right. You know, this is an all hands on deck fight. Uh, the stakes could not be higher. We're looking at massive disruptions to our global ecosystem and of course the human systems that are you know, based on the ecosystem as it is and as it has been for the last hundred years. That's changing so rapidly and unfortunately that's gonna mean pretty significant disruptions to a number of things that we take for granted in our current world order. And so it's incumbent on everyone to, to jump on board, but um, we need to recognize that it's, it's a diverse fight and there's a lot of different roles for folks to play. So, you know, we need all hands on deck, but you know, find the space that's right for you. Mm, absolutely. And uh, so let's actually unpack some of the cold, hard facts that are currently uh, the state of play when it comes to waste and the plastic crisis in particular. Absolutely. So I'm going to focus mostly on plastic. That's been an area that uh, the Story of Stuff Project has really been working for the last few years. And in fact, we have just finished producing our first feature length documentary called The Story of Plastic, which really zooms into this particularly problematic material that itself is really illustrative of so many of the problems across the materials economy and across a variety of uh, types of waste. Um, and yet it's one that is particularly problematic due to the fact that plastic lasts effectively forever in an ecological sense uh, in the environment uh, and therefore is, is one that really merits prompt attention now. To put it simply, we are facing a plastic crisis. This is something that I think increasingly people are attuned to as it really is receiving its moment of the spotlight. Plastic is everywhere. It's clogging human communities and natural ecosystems on every corner of the earth. Now much of this plastic we can see is the type of large plastic that you might encounter as litter in your public park or have seen stories about in our oceans. And in fact, the UN estimates that by 2050 there will be more plastic than fish in the ocean. But we're also learning that there is an increasing amount of what's called microplastics in the environment. Now plastic doesn't degrade organically, but it does break down mechanically or into smaller and smaller bits. Some of them as small as nanometers across, invisible to the human eye. And yet we're beginning to find microplastics pretty much everywhere that we've gone to look for them. They show up in our tap water and bottled water, 
in honey, beer, sea salt. It's even been found in remote parts of the Swiss Alps and of course in our oceans as well. You can think of it therefore as a plastic soup where you've got these big chunks, but you also have this plastic smog of microplastics. Now, we're still learning uh, a lot about the human health impacts of microplastics, uh, but we certainly are very concerned about the implications for the destabilization of entire ecosystems and food chains, because these microplastics can look like food to the smallest organisms in uh, our soil and in our oceans. Uh, but when consumed, of course, don't provide nutrients, but rather poison these ecosystems and then consolidate as little animals eat microplastics and then get eaten by larger and larger animals until they condense all the way up the food chain. So this really underscores just how problematic plastic is as a material and how much it's coming to saturate our environment in ways that we are only now beginning to understand the consequences of. Now, the second point to understand is that plastic isn't just a pollution at the end of life when it enters our oceans or our environments, but in fact, plastic pollutes at every step. Uh, we often forget that plastic is made from fossil fuels, from oil, and increasingly from fracked natural gas. So when we think about plastic pollution, we have to understand that from the moment it leaves the wellhead as natural gas, liquid, or oil, plastic is poisoning the communities that are situated near these extraction sites, which are often economically marginalized black and brown communities. And it continues to pollute when it goes through heavy industrial processes to actually make the plastic itself. And even when we interact with plastic through the additives that can be uh, put into it to alter its chemical properties. So long before plastic reaches the environment in the form of a landfill, the ocean, or even an incinerator, plastic is harming people and the planet. Next, as I noted there, the impacts of plastic pollution and the plastic crisis more broadly are being felt unequally. People in the developed world and affluent folks um, often have the luxury of selecting uh, their plastic products. They're very unlikely to be situated anywhere near a uh, natural gas extraction or a plastic production site or to see plastic poisoning their polluting their community because they can afford cleanup and relatively good you know, waste hauling services. However, people in the Houston ship channel in the United States, for example, uh, live within typically less than a mile of some of the largest industrial sites in the world and are exposed to enormously high levels of environmental uh, pollutants, which have very serious health consequences for them. Um, additionally, individuals in the developing world are more likely to be exposed to plastic waste. Uh, multinational corporations typically based in the global north, in Europe or in the United States, market more low-value plastics into the developing world and at the global south that typically can't be recycled. There's simply no way to do it. And these communities often don't have the type of waste hauling systems that we're used to enjoying in the U.S. or in Australia. So those types of plastics are far more likely to accumulate in their communities or to end up in the ocean or to simply be openly burnt as fuel, increase, introducing increasing pollution into their communities. Now, when we look at all of these problems at every step of the uh, plastic economy, it's important to understand who is responsible for this. Ultimately, there are very few corporations that are behind this. We're talking about petrochemical industry, uh, petrochemical companies like Dow, or fossil fuel producers like Exxon are producing all of this plastic and making it available to fast moving consumer goods companies at extremely low prices. Uh, they're flooding our world with plastic. 
it's not individual litter bugs or lazy people in Southeast Asia that are carelessly tossing plastic aside, but it's people whose communities are being flooded with this material uh, for the profit of these multinational corporations and simply have no other way to deal with it. And despite the scale of this problem, the petrochemical industry is investing billions of dollars into increasing our production even more. So this problem is bad and it's only gonna get worse if we don't dramatically change course. Um, but luckily solutions exist. We can solve this problem. I'm glad um, you said that, Brett, because yeah. I reckon out there right now, people are like, oh my gosh, Ooh, this yeah. is really <laughs> bad. I think I might switch off now, but here we are, some solutions, go for it. <laughs> yes, so um, fear not, solutions exist. And frankly, they're not super complicated. There's a lot of them and it will take some work to bring them to bear. What do those solutions look like? Well. The simplest and fundamental one is that we need to shut off the taps. Uh, this is a problem of volume. It's a problem of the simply enormous amount of plastic that is entering our world. So we need to stop producing so much of it. Part of that means removing fossil fuel subsidies that the fossil fuel industry enjoys. Uh, in the US, for example, the fossil fuel industry receives some $20 billion of public subsidies. And this means that it's very, very, very cheap for them to produce uh, so much plastic. Um, if we can remove these subsidies and then even impose recycled content mandates on new plastic products and packaging, we'll go a long way to increasing the incentives to recycle and to use recycled plastic content, which will increase capture rates and decrease productions. We also need um, to look at new ways of delivering and packaging products. So take the example of Southeast Asia, where we're seeing increasing numbers of packaging, uh, increasing number of products being packaged in what are called sachets. So these are single-use, often multi-layer packages. You can think of like a ketchup packet as an example of a sachet that most people are familiar with. It used to be that in communities in neighborhoods in Manila, the Philippines, for example, you would go to your local corner store with a glass bottle and you would get a day or a few days worth of cooking oil or soy sauce or whatnot. Now you'll go and get one serving's worth of soy sauce or cooking oil in a plastic packaging that simply can't be recycled. Well, we need to ask, and if they don't listen, then force consumer goods companies like Nestle, Unilever, and Johnson & Johnson that are distributing these types of products to reinvest in uh, these alternative zero waste delivery systems. Um, we know that they can do it. You know, it's not a particularly complicated problem, but they just have no incentive to do so. So if we can make virgin plastic more expensive, if we can make recycled plastic more available, and if we can invest in uh, new systems for uh, the delivery of products and packaging, we can go a long way to reducing the amount of plastic that's entering our economy, paired with other solutions like legislative interventions uh, to reduce uh, uh, single-use disposable products, such as Berkeley, California's recent disposable-free dining ordinance, which is phasing out single-use plastic takeout uh, products. Um, so it's a patchwork solution. It looks different in different communities, but uh, you know, it's it's not some technological silver break bullet. Uh, breakthrough that we're waiting for. It's just a matter of mustering the political and cultural will to push these solutions forward and to bring the massive multinational corporations that bear responsibility for this problem into line and hold them accountable for their actions. I like that you've you've made the focus and the target uh, the corporations who are responsible because if you look at um, uh, an old boss in hospitality days taught me this. If you um, if you make a statement and the other person says why 
and you answer their why. And then the other person says why again, then you answer the why. Then the other person says why again, and you get to the root of what the issue is. The issue is corruption in the government and the fact that politicians can be bought, right? So the only solution for us right now, because that just doesn't look like something we can fix anytime soon, is to actually vote with our dollars and our voices towards the corporations who are responsible and say, you need to do business differently. Otherwise, we are no longer doing business with you as consumers. We are no longer buying your end product when it's packaged this way. We are no longer, you know, and, and then, we, then we can feel powerful while we're trying to address what the really big root cause is of it all in the first place. Absolutely. You know, certainly voting with our dollars is part of it. We should, of course, support companies that are making efforts to do things ethically that helps us reduce our own impact and communicate that there is an economic imperative for corporations to alter their behavior. Mm. At the same time. Yeah, sorry. I'll just um, just add, um, it feels like that's a very privileged few who can vote for their dollar right with their dollar right now, though. Right. So it's not not enough. Yeah, precisely. Yeah. So, you know, we also need to make sure that we are putting in place, um, you know, legal and economic uh, structures that really force their hands. And, you know, we say uh, certainly we can try and shop green, but more important than this, the uh, sorry, let me start that one over. Um, As you note, unfortunately, it is a privileged um, solution to be able to have the economic liberty to make a selection. Sometimes the more sustainable and green products can be more expensive, but it's more important than the decision around what we take off the shelf is the decision around what's put on the shelf. So the higher we can set our targets uh, with larger and larger institutions, the better. So certainly shopping green is great, but if you can convince your local store to only stock sustainable and green products, that's even better. And if you can uh, encourage your your state government or your national government to uh, only allow the production or distribution of sustainable products such that every store shelf everywhere is only stocked with the right options, that's even better yet. Mm, so, so important. And I find when I, um, I have the uh, great fortune of being in some business networks where I get to have conversations with people who are qu- responsible for quite... Um, huge change if they should choose to change things. And that gets really exciting when you can give a talk and you can talk about the plastic crisis, for example, and, uh, and then talk about what that, how that might impact retailers, how retailers can, and then you speak to their desire to be the pioneer as an entrepreneur. You say how the smart retailers can be the pioneers that lead the way for others and really cash in on the big explosion of change that consumers are so desperate for with whether or not they realize it. And then you're like, oh, that's interesting. It's a business opportunity to do better by people and planet. So I I often find that to really create big change, we need to think about what motivates certain people. And if being a leader in a market is what motivates someone, then we speak to that desire that they might have. Absolutely. And this, you know, speaks again to that point of putting your grid where it will do the most. There's a whole variety of tactics to bring to bear. And so for some people, it's having conversations with the shareholders of large multinational corporations to bring, you know, shareholder resolutions to bear and force corporate behavior. For other people, it's through legislative means. For other people, it's through cultural uh, expressions. So, you know, as I say, again, it is an all hands on deck approach. Different solutions work for different types of organizations and different, you know, um, 
um, different institutions, uh, but ultimately we need to bring all of them along, right? Hundred percent, hundred percent. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So I wanted to ask you then about this uh, break free from plastic uh, movement. So it's the global movement that we could perhaps all tap into to make our voices bigger on this issue. Can you talk to me about that movement specifically? Yeah, absolutely. So Break Free From Plastic is a global movement with a unified strategy to end plastic pollution. And uh, there are over 1,600 groups around the world that are part of this movement. Uh, It arose out of um, a recognized need to bring together organizations working on different sides of this issue, some of the different strategies that we just discussed, and different geographies, recognizing that Um, much of the blame was being shifted to Southeast Asia. And unfortunately, those groups had a disproportionately low voice in this conversation. So it was an attempt to really get around the problem of, you know, globally North-based big green environmental organizations showing up and trying to impose a Western notion of waste handling on communities where it wasn't necessarily appropriate, communities where they had their own solutions that they were ready to bring to bear that reflected their own unique culture and history. So Break Free From Plastic has been a really exciting opportunity for folks working on the beginning of the plastic life cycle in Houston, uh, near the plastic fossil fuel extraction and plastic production sites, to be in conversation with people working on corporate advocacy to try and change corporate behavior, and bringing them into conversation with folks in Southeast Asia that are dealing with end of life, where plastic waste is being imported into their countries uh, for processing, and they're being flooded with not just waste you know, not just with the plastic products exported into their country and used in their country, but also our products and our waste and packaging that's being exported into their country. So it provided a really, really important mechanism for all of those conversations to be aligned, for groups to work in solidarity with one another, to amplify our impact. Um, And it's a movement whose story we're very proud to tell in the story of plastic. So I'd encourage folks to visit breakfreefromplastic.org to view some of the resources, opportunities to engage and learn a little bit more of the constituent groups and their unified strategy, or to visit storyofplastic.org and sign up to watch the movie. We'll have a chance to meet some of the grassroots leaders working on the front lines of this issue through the Break Free From Plastic movement. Mm. And is the story of plastic available already for us to stream? You know, it's not yet. Okay. When is it coming uh, out? Uh, we are really eager to get it into folks' hands. Um, it's looking like it'll be early 2020. We are we're close. Uh, it is, however, screening at a number of film festivals, though. So if you happen to live in the right area, you may be able to catch it. Uh, the calendar of those screenings is on storyofplastic.org under the Watch tab. Uh, but stay tuned because we are really excited to lead a big global push and get it into as many hands as possible. So hopefully it'll be coming to a community near you very soon. That's exciting. Very exciting. Um, Okay, so we've talked about uh, how we can start to think a bit bigger with our actions, Um, but uh, I I often feel like there's still a lot of tiny little groups doing small things. Is Is it a matter of us reaching out when we see that there's a group acting independently, letting them know about the break free from plastic? Because I feel like 1600 groups around the world is tiny when you, we've probably got that many in Australia. So it, you know, from everything you've said so far, it really feels like the next step for us to make big change here is to make sure we're all plugged into uh, the same network so that we can amplify the work that everybody's doing. 
Absolutely. You know, if there are organizers listening here that are working locally on issues, I would certainly encourage you to look into Break Free from Plastic and see you know, how you can participate in that conversation and um, what that movement uh, can provide in terms of access to, um, to as I said, a conversation, to, to variety of resources to support that work. Um, but I think it's you know entirely appropriate that there are small and independent groups working with their own strategies. So if there's a group in a small community, whether in Australia or even here in California, that's working to pass, say, an ordinance to um, uh, to remove styrofoam or plastic bags in their community. Um, that's a relatively straightforward process, and certainly, you know, can be a lot of work. But it's a relatively straightforward process, and I think that it's it's great that we see this vibrant you know ecosystem of, of organizations working with a variety of tactics uh, to address these issues. Mm. Yeah, great. Um, and then I'd love to ask you on a, a personal level, what brings you a sense of hope each day when, you know, every act, activist has a day where they're feeling defeated, where they think, oh, my gosh, you know, how are we ever going to get this done? Uh, you talk about the metaphor of a relay and at least like moving the needle to the point where when we pass the baton, people get to take it up a step. But along the way, it's not a a steady climb. There are lots of dips and there's setbacks. How do you personally deal with those to stay motivated to continue? Yeah, great question. Um, <laughs> let, let me let me just I, actually I should have noodled on this one a little bit more beforehand, but uh, let me think of how I want to frame this. For me. Um, for me, I feel good to be able to do the work. I, that sounds somewhat trite, but in a world where there is so much, uh, where, where, where there are so many fights to, to address, where there is such a need for justice, knowing that I am doing the best that I can, that I am taking advantage of the privileges that I was born to and have enjoyed throughout my life, that I am continuing to build my skills and to bring them to bear on this issue. That's what keeps me going. So. So you feel like maybe it's a pl coming back to a place of gratitude on the tougher days. Like I get to do this work. So get yeah, that exactly. Mm. Right. You know, cause I see, I live in, I live in the Bay area in San Francisco. So I, you know, have friends and, and I'm in community with people that work for, you know, the big tech companies and, you know, work on ad placements. And um, a lot of them are not super happy with that, but they've been enculturated to, you know, to take on that type of work and to pursue different objectives. And I, I feel very grateful to be part of this conversation, to have access to role models and leaders that are doing work in really exciting ways to be, um, to be part of the fight and to know at the end of each day, even if things were frustrating or difficult, or I've seen a, a news report about the, the state of this crisis, that I am doing the best that I can. Um, and that I'm working my hardest and that I can feel confident that, you know, as you say, there are better days and there are worse days, but I feel pretty confident that I'm on the right side of this thing and that I'm making a difference. And sometimes that's, that's the best that you can do. So yeah, returning to, to gratitude and, to, to patience and, and grace and recognizing that, you know, this is a relay, but best you could do is show up, show yeah, up. Absolutely. And what do you do that has absolutely nothing to do with your work that brings you joy? 
Yeah, I, um, it's so important for folks to have those other spaces of solitude. Agreed. I think activist burnout is a real thing. And, mm. you know, when you're kind of staring into the abyss every day, as it were, eventually it starts looking back. So it's, it's really good and important to have this, this places to unplug. Um, I really enjoy board games. I was glad to see you. Uh, yeah. You know, <laughs> asked about favorite board games. So always happy to get together with friends and put down our screens and engage and play together. Um, I like to juggle. Um, juggling is a fun activity for me. It's one of those oh, cool. things into a flow state because you're you know, focused just enough to make sure that you're not dropping the balls, but you're not focusing on it in a kind of executive functioning sort of way. So it's really nice to just put on some music and again, just, just to play. Uh, I have the real um, joy of being in an area where there's a lot of really fun, cool stuff happening, great events and interactive, immersive art experiences. And so I feel, feel very fortunate to be able to engage in those places where people are asking really interesting questions about identity and how we show up in the world and create meaning and joy in the role of art. Uh, and so those are spaces in which I find great value and even opportunities to integrate these conversations and invite people to consider it to consider how you know, counterculture expressions or art, for example, can be used as tools to take part in this work, the transformation of society into a more just and sustainable world. Mm, beautiful. And I'll finish by asking you a little bit more about the story of plastic feature film, because I feel like as we go live now, first week of February, we are probably very close to the launch of this film. And I want to make sure that our community who are in 129 different countries around the world knows how to not only uh, access is going to be easy, we're just going to know that it'll be on uh, the Story of Plastic or the Story of Stuff websites or social media. We'll see it everywhere, I'm sure. But what to do once we've watched that film? Is there a call to action towards the end of the movie? Are there going to be a whole bunch of resources uh, that will then be provided for us to know what our next steps are because I feel like often we watch these movies, get all riled up and excited, and unless there is a clear path to take the information we've learnt and, and do something with it, um, we can lose the benefit of such incredible work being done. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's, a, that's a really important question and it's certainly one that's been front of mind for all of us as we produce this documentary and now are moving towards the distribution phase. Um, we do envision a distributed approach wherein the film will be a resource that local groups can use to mobilize their community around the campaigns that they're working on. So if there's a group in you know, a particular town that is pushing forward a, a legislative intervention, say a disposable free dining ordinance or a bag ban, that they have the opportunity to use this film and integrate their own call to action in their community. Because we really do believe that groups on the ground, on the front lines, are in the best position to know what's needed at that time and in that area. At the same time, I'm actually traveling to the Philippines um, next week at time of recording for conversations with the Break Free From Plastic um, movement around uh, a coordinated global call to action. Um, but it will really focus on empowering people to take action, as you say, to get plastic out of their life, out of the places that they live, work, and learn. And finally, to participate in um, interventions being fielded by other large national and international groups uh, with dedicated strategies around this work. Um, so yes, absolutely calls to action will be integrated whether through a local group that is screening the film or um, that people can interact with directly, including a variety of resource guides that help them take action to conceive of themselves as change makers and to know what the next steps are that are gonna meaningfully make a difference there. 
Awesome. Thank you so much, Brett. Such a pleasure to chat to you and for you to give us the, uh, the, the information that we need to take next steps and some of those ideas around starting to see what our biggest step might be were really, really inspiring. So I'm going to now do a little bit of work to put together some information on what might be those next steps for the Lotox Life community. So thank you for your time and all the best with the launch and rollout of the film. Thank you so much. It really was a pleasure to speak with you and to, uh, to your, uh, with your community as well. And really look forward to continuing to um, see you and, and all of you, you know, continuing to be participants in this conversation. I know that you all are really well positioned to make some meaningful change in this, in this space. So I thank you for your voice in that conversation. Oh, you can count on us. Thank you so much for listening to today's show. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoy having these conversations and bringing them to you. Now, where can you find me and Lotox Life from here on in? Well, you've obviously got lotoxlife.com and there we have everything beautifully organized into food, home, body and mind topics as well as kids and a whole bunch of free downloadables and resources to help you, inspire you to take community action uh, and uh, there's amazing A to Z recipes there if you're ever getting a little bit uh, stale in the kitchen and a whole bunch of articles that I've written over the past nine years of writing a blog. You can also find me on Instagram at Lotox Life and also on Facebook by a page the same name. I make everything super easy, Lotox Life, so you can find it really, really simply. Thank you so much to everybody who leaves a five-star review over on Stitcher or iTunes or wherever it is that you tune into the show. And also to let you know that you can join us on Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash Lotox Life and come join the private Lotox Life Club. In there, over time, more and more cool stuff is about to be added and I can't wait to see where that community takes us. It's a place where we can continue the conversations, chat about the weekly show, you're going to get bonus uh, Q&A and all sorts of things over time. I explain everything over on Patreon, so I encourage you to check that out. And in the meantime, I'll see you next week. Hello?
talk today.